one Lord, one faith, one birth. We just got to enact that this morning, and so it's a joy uh, to be gathered here. Um, Moonvenezes, we love you all, and we're grateful for your ministry, and we'll be in prayer for you. During this season of Advent, we are walking through what is commonly called the Christ Hymn in the first chapter of Colossians, and this is a section that represents so much of the New Testament's rich teaching about Jesus' person and work. And we've already seen how Jesus uh, reveals the invisible God to us, and that the hope of seeing him ought to organize our lives, and how Jesus himself created and therefore holds all things together. And while you could say those first two teachings about Jesus in this hymn are perhaps universal to creation, that is, they are offered to all creatures, they're true whether or not you accept or reject Jesus, right? There's no other place to glimpse the divine than in the face of Jesus. And so people are running themselves into the ground to find transcendence elsewhere. And whether you acknowledge it or not, Christ himself created you and holds you together even now. But these next three weeks will primarily deal with who Jesus is and what he does for his church. How, as the only mediator of God's elect, the God-man both redeems and rules his people. So we'll read together the entire passage once again, but today we'll focus particularly on verses 18 and then 21 to 22. And young worshipers, there's a, a word picture in, this, in the verses that we're focusing on today, particularly verse 18, and I want you to listen for it and write down in your work for young worshipers, what picture does Paul give us of the church? What does he say the church is like? So we'll read Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. 
And now grant that we ministers and stewards of your mysteries may likewise make ready your way and turn the hearts of the disobedient toward the wisdom of the just that at your second coming to judge the world, we may be found a people acceptable in your sight. For with the Father and the Holy Spirit, you live and reign, one God, now and forever. Amen. And would you be seated? Stories told in the Stoic tradition of a rebellion of the common Roman citizens against the political elites. And in response to the uprising, the Roman Senate sends one of their own who came from among the commoners to attempt to bring these rebels back into the fold. Meninius Agrippa was his name, and he told the separatists this story. In the days when man's members did not all agree amongst themselves, as is now the case, but each had its own ideas and a voice of its own, the other parts of the body thought it unfair that they should have to worry and trouble and labor of providing everything for the belly, while the belly remained quietly in their midst with nothing to do but to enjoy the good things which they bestowed upon it. They therefore conspired together that the hands should carry no food to the mouth, nor the mouth accept anything that was given it, nor the teeth grind up what they received. While they sought in this angry spirit to starve the belly into submission, the members themselves and the whole body were reduced to utmost weakness. Hence, it had become clear that even the belly had no idle task to perform and was no more nourished than it nourished the rest by giving out to all parts of the body that by which we live and thrive. And Agrippa, as the story goes, suppressed the rebellion and prevailed over the common people to reassert the dominance of the Roman elites. So you see, fable as political propaganda is nothing new, right? This is a powerful story, and it's one that imprisons the lower classes in their subservience to the elite because of their dependence. But it's also a game of chicken. Because the elites knew, just as the body parts in the story knew, that they were fed by the body's extremities. They were just as dependent on the parts of the body as those parts are on the belly. Now, interestingly, this body and parts metaphor gets used throughout the ancient world to express similar social ideas. And you even see it used positively by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, where he makes the point that all parts of the body, that is, the members of the church, are necessary and to be honored. But there's another aspect to Paul's use of the body metaphor that is perhaps the theological foundation on which the metaphor sits. That the body, the church, is not ruled by the belly. It's not ruled by some elite class that feeds its cravings on the subservience of its members. Instead, it is ruled by the only head who is Christ alone. And the head, unlike the belly, needs nothing from the members. Indeed, he himself brings those members into his body 
And he himself rules them as their good king, and he himself nourishes every one of them. We've been talking in recent weeks about the transcendence and the creative power of God in Christ. And this fundamental distinction between the creator of the universe and everything else that he has made. And therefore, the radical condescension that is represented in the incarnation, that the creator would stoop low, he would stoop down to become like his creatures in order to redeem them. And what Paul says next about Jesus is the necessary implication of that radical condescension for the redeemed. That as rebellious creatures are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into light by the redemption offered in Christ, they must be gathered in to some new society, some new body. And that body must have at its head their creator, who is also their redeemer. You see, Paul wants to show us that Christ, as the head of the body, gathers and rules and grows his church. That in contrast to any other social order, this new society called the church is wholly dependent on its creator and head. And he is the head of the church in three primary ways. First, he is its constitutive head. Paul says in verse 18 that Christ is the head of the body, the church. So we've talked a little bit about this body metaphor, and we'll return to it in a moment. But let's think about this word church for a second. Now, if your unbelieving neighbor asked you to define the word church, what would you say? Well, you might start here. You might call it a body, or you might employ other helpful biblical metaphors like a vine or a collection of stones built up into a beautiful temple or a group of pilgrims on the road toward the promised land. Those are all rich biblical metaphors that we could unpack for days. But it's also helpful to look at what the word church means in the New Testament. It's this Greek word ekklesia, and it means a called out assembly. It's a word that's often used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was in circulation during this time when Paul was writing, to refer to the nation of Israel when they were gathered to God at Mount Sinai after he redeemed them from the land of Egypt. They had been liberated from their oppression and had been gathered to that place of worship before their Redeemer. This word for church in the New Testament is a rich one, and among other things, it implies that we have been gathered from somewhere and gathered to somewhere, perhaps better, to someone. Well, what have we been gathered from? After this Advent series in the new year, Noah will um, go back to the beginning of Colossians and preach on one of my favorite passages in chapter 1, where Paul says that Christians have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is, you've been called out of Egypt, out of darkness and the oppression of sin and death and into the kingdom of light and life. And here's the thing about that gathering, that calling out. You had nothing to do with it. Zero. 
In fact, you wanted to stay in Egypt. Um, one of the things I'm learning more and more in my early years of parenthood is that two-year-olds are really funny. They're, they're probably, it's like the most comical, entertaining age for a child in my short experience. And so our sweet two-year-old Lucy is, uh, she's an entertaining one. She's also a pretty fiery one. And I wish I could peek inside her little mind, especially when she throws a fit. Now, you know the fit that I'm talking about if you are a parent. It's, uh, it, it's bedtime, and she's whining and complaining because she's so, 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 so tired. And so you, the wise and loving parent that you are, posit a solution, the most logical one. Okay, let's go to bed. And then the screaming begins, Right? Why? Because as bad as the problem is, the solution you are offering goes against every impulse she has to stay up and not miss out on anything. No, you didn't transfer yourself into God's kingdom. No matter how much you could have longed for it, you would never go there on your own because it is Christ alone who gathers. Christ alone who constitutes his church. Didn't he promise us this when he promised it to Peter? On this rock... I will build my church. Chapter 25 in the Westminster Confession is brilliant on the matters of how Christ gathers and rules his church. And the first part says this, the universal church consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof. We are gathered by him We are gathered to him as our head, and it is his sovereign work which brings us and keeps us and feeds us as his body. And because this body is also a kingdom, Christ is also our institutional head. Now, this is a bit of a logical move, that that if we are constituted into this body by the head... And if we're not gathered in by our own effort, but by his grace, then it must be this head who rules this new body, this new society. But again, this Greek word for head is packed with significance. It can mean, very simply, the part of our body that we call our head. And that's part of the metaphor here. But the sense here, technically, is that that the head is the superior. Paul is emphasizing the position and power of the head in comparison to the rest of the body. Jesus is the ruler of his church, just as he is its architect. And because he is its king, he rules the way he chooses, right? Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. This is the creature-creator distinction at work here, that because the creator is so far above the creatures... How could they possibly call into question the wisdom and goodness of the way that he is pleased to rule? Well, I'll tell you how. Because it makes no sense. The good and perfect king has chosen to rule his church as an institution, get this, through sinful men. Now, I know you love it when I quote from the from the book of church order on Sunday morning. So here we go. And if you're not a Presbyterian, the book of church order is simply a a document that helps us kind of summarize the Bible's teaching about church government. 
But it says this, it belongs to Christ's majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church through his word and spirit by the ministry of men. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that this all-knowing, all-wise, perfect and loving king and lord of the universe who himself gathers and builds his church then turns it over to sinful men to lead? Well, in one sense, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that when Christ ascended into glory, he gave gifts to men as the conquering king might dole out the spoils of war. And those gifts include apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. In other words, the institutional leaders of his church. Now, if that's what the Bible says... That Christ, the perfect king, is pleased to govern his church through fallible men, then let's just openly lodge our complaint, shall we? That seems crazy. <laughs> Especially in our day when we can see corruption rising to the highest levels of almost every institution in our society. Even, and perhaps in some cases, especially the church. You know what's also crazy is that the Lord lets his fallible people choose those leaders. I'm reminded of uh, the account in Acts chapter 6 when the first deacons were chosen from among the brothers in Jerusalem. So I'll pick on you deacons for just a minute. In Acts chapter 6, turn there if you have your Bibles, the, the, this fledgling institution called the church is having a problem caring for widows equitably in the daily distribution that was given to those in need. And the apostles, the leaders of this institution, are overwhelmed and they're being distracted from their primary task of prayer and teaching God's word to his people. And so they tell the church to choose from among themselves another group of spiritual leaders, later called deacons, and look what their qualifications are to be. Acts chapter 6, verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Okay, so follow, follow this. Christ rules his church through fallible men, and he gives to his people the power to choose those leaders. And in his word, he gives the criteria for choosing those leaders, both here and, of course, in other passages you are familiar with. And one of the common denominators is that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom, called by Christ to the task of caring for his people. In this case, with the deacons, tasked with caring for their physical needs, and in the case of the elders, their spiritual needs. And according to Christ's appointment, these men should be filled with his spirit and should be mature in faith and wise and all the things that Paul lists to in his pastoral epistles. And the church, full of fallible people, is tasked with discerning this and choosing from among themselves. That's how Jesus has set it up. So here's the question. What do we do when it goes wrong? What do we do when our leaders fail us? How can we submit ourselves to the government of an institution which by its very definition is governed by fallible people who are going to fail us? Let me ask you this. What is the most breathtaking piece of art you've ever beheld. Maybe it's a piece of music or 
a painting, a photograph, some other medium. For me, it's a, it's a piece of music by a pretty unknown uh, band that I used to have on CD. And kids, CDs are these tiny metal-looking discs that they're not as cool as albums and they're smaller and that kind of thing. Look it up. Um, but there was this, this few bars of music and they make me think of heaven every time I listen to them because there's sort of a, a, a low piano and, and a string, sort of an orchestral arrangement building behind it. And uh, then it eventually explodes into this beautiful chorus that makes me think, this is probably what it sounds like to die and wake up in heaven. But those of you who had CDs at one point, what happens when you, uh, when you get a scratch on the backside? That CD inevitably will skip, right? And sadly, the CD that I had of this piece of music developed a skip at the exact place where the song broke out into such beauty. And it's such a tragedy because I know how beautiful it's supposed to sound, and I know that that beauty is forever marred by this scratch. Another story this reminds me of is Rembrandt's Christ in the Storm, this beautiful painting that depicts Jesus and his disciples just before he calms the storm. It's a dramatic and captivating work, but it was stolen from the museum that housed it over 30 years ago, and it's never resurfaced. It's literally a global tragedy that such beauty has been robbed from the public. Now, if you've had this kind of experience... What is your reaction to it? Is it revulsion? Did you develop a disdain for the art because of the way that it has been marred? No, of course not. Your reaction is longing. Longing for the beauty that you know ought to be there. You see, if the church is the body of Christ... And if Christ is the image of the invisible God, then the church itself has a reflective function in this world to reflect and image the beauty of its head and king and to represent that beauty to a world that needs it. Through the church, including its fallible leaders, Christ is painting a beautiful picture of redemption for the world to see. And I pray this morning that the Lord would give you eyes to see that beauty because when you have seen it, even when it is marred by the failures and sins of God's people and especially his leaders, the beauty of Christ's work in the church ought to compel us to long for it all the more. And in that longing to work for and to study the purity and peace of the church. Now, is there a time to leave a church when its leaders have acted wickedly? Absolutely. But let us not adopt the world's orientation toward the beautiful. That when sin in the church rears its ugly head, don't respond with revulsion. Don't cancel the church. Instead, long for the beauty that you know Christ wants to display and consider the part he's calling you to play in displaying it. Because the reality is, not just our leaders, but all of us are in process, which is why Jesus is also the organic head of the church. Look finally at verses 21 and 22. 
And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Okay, so Jesus has done something. He has redeemed hostile rebels. And now Jesus is doing something in this ingathered body organically. That is, he is growing his body. He is painting on this beautiful canvas. He is erasing the dents and the imperfections and the scratches little by little and causing us all to grow up into him as our head. In fact, that's exactly how Paul says it in Ephesians 4, that same passage we talked about earlier where Christ gave the gifts of church officers for the upbuilding of the church. Paul teaches that this, uh, this plan to give these gifts of the officers are to train and to equip so that the gifts of the diverse members of the body are fostered and brought to bear. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That Christ is even now being formed in each of us. And in this body, collectively, so that he who brings the growth will one day present us before the throne of God without blemish. The scratch is erased and the music is restored. The Rembrandt is returned and on display for all to see. The body comprised of fallible men and women will one day be perfected in glory and will function under its head with joyful submission for all eternity. And by the way, I'll be out of a job. But even here and now, that is the kind of work that Christ our head is involved in, bringing growth and beauty to his church and through us shining his light into a dark world. How? Well, think about this. How does Christ make us beautiful as his body? How does he do it? Here's how. By the marring of his own body beyond recognition. His death in our place, his burial, his submission to the grave, and ultimately his glorious resurrection, securing ours with him. And for all the distrust we may have in institutional heads today, you simply can't distrust the one who lays down his life for you. You know, in Agrippa's tale, he portrayed the Roman Senate as the belly. And perhaps you're like me and you think that that's a pretty good metaphor for government today or maybe some other part of the digestive tract. But the belly, that's, perhaps that's a, an apt metaphor for many of the institutional leaders in our world today feeding themselves at the expense of the extremities, the elites convincing the masses to play by their rules and pad their pockets or something of that nature. But hear this, that is not the kind of king that rules the church. He is the head who gathers and rules and grows his body by condescending to take on our nature. To live a life of poverty, 
suffering, grief, to be rejected by his own and ultimately to die in our place so that he might redeem us, transferring us from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light and remaking us more and more into his own beautiful image as we march toward glory. Say what you want about the rulers of this world, but that is a ruler we can't help but submit to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. King Jesus, you have condescended to take upon yourself our very nature that we might be redeemed, gathered in, brought to you, ruled by you, led and grown by you, and so we give you thanks And even as we're in this time between, this time where you have already called us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, but we're still marching toward that final homeland and we're still um, uh, struck by the darkness of our sin and the sin around us, would you give us more grace that we might love one another? Would you give to the leaders of this church a measure of your spirit that we might continue in bearing fruit in keeping with repentance And would you give us as a body the grace to learn to love and serve and forgive one another and to see the beauty that you want to make in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.